0: Section 49 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13, Henry VIII, by James Gardner, Part 6. The old nobility were the king's natural advisers. The commons could scarcely as yet be called a real power in the state. But the old nobility were reduced in numbers and were no match for him in intelligence. They were superseded moreover in the end by a new nobility created by himself out of the middle classes. Meanwhile, he took counsel both of noblemen and of commoners just as suited himself and he soon found out who served him best early in the reign he made large use of churchmen such as warham fox wolsey pace and gardiner for churchmen were generally men of greater penetration than ordinary lay agents of the crown a perceptible change took place in this matter when with cromwell's aid he compelled the church to acknowledge royal supremacy and disown the pope's authority the churchmen then promoted were only those who fell in with the new policy and who occupied in enforcing it on the clergy were not capable of much service in framing acts of state or assisting in secular government for in truth this great ecclesiastical revolution was that which completed and consolidated the fabric of henry's despotism if among the laity he had neither lord nor commoner who durst withstand him there were churchmen like some of the observant friars who actually spoke out against the public scandal which he was creating by repudiating his lawful wife and the king felt truly enough that if he was to have his way the voice of the church must be either silenced or perverted so the central authority of christendom was no longer to determine what was right or wrong in england the church must be under royal supremacy to this decisive breach with rome henry himself was driven with some reluctance for no king was at first more devoted to the church or more desirous to stand well in the opinion of his own subjects nor could it be said that the church's yoke was a painful one to mighty potentates like him but wilfulness and obstinacy were very strong features of henry's character whatever he did he must never appear to retract and he had so frequently threatened the pope with the withdrawal of his allegiance in case he would not grant him his divorce that at last he felt bound to make good what he had threatened For the first time in history, Europe beheld a great prince deliberately withdraw himself and his subjects from the spiritual domain of Rome and enforce, by the severest penalties, the repudiation of papal authority. For the first time also, Europe realized how weak the papacy had become when it was proved unable to punish such aggression. Foreign nations were scandalized, but no foreign prince could afford lightly to quarrel with england henry was considered an enemy of christianity much as was the turk but the prospect of a crusade against him though at times it looked fairly probable always vanished in the end foreign princes were too suspicious of each other to act together in this and henry himself by his own wary policy contrived to ward off the danger he was anxious to show that the faith of christendom was maintained as firmly within his kingdom as ever he made cranmer a sort of insular pope and insisted on respect being paid to his decrees especially in reference to his own numerous marriages and divorces but beyond the suspension of the canon law and the complete subjugation of the clergy to the civil power He was not anxious to make vital changes in religion, and both doctrine and ritual remained in his day nearly unaltered. The innovations actually made consisted in little more than the authorization of an English Bible, the publication of some formularies to which little objection could be taken, and, what has not been mentioned above, the first use of an English litany. For though as yet there was no English prayer book, a litany in the common tongue was ordered in 1544 when the king was about to embark for France. The authorized English Bible was undoubtedly a new force in the religious history of England. Wycliffe's Bible had preceded it by more than a century, and there had been earlier translations still but Wycliffe's attempt to popularize the scriptures in an English form had been disapproved of by the Church, which considered the clergy as the special custodians and interpreters of Holy Writ, without whose guidance it could too easily be perverted and misconstrued. This was the feeling which inspired the Constitution of Archbishop Arundel in 1408, forbidding the use of any translation, which had not been approved by the diocesan of the place, or by some provincial council. In days when the sacred writings were only multiplied by copyists, translations of particular books of scripture, or even of the whole, might be episcopally authorized, if good in themselves, as luxuries for private use, without apparent prejudice to the faith but wycliffe's version was regarded as a deliberate attempt to vulgarize a literature of peculiar sanctity which required careful exposition by men of learning the vernacular bible however was prized by many laymen even in the fifteenth century and certainly influenced not a little the religious thought of the period for in opposition to the special claims of the church the Lollards set up a theory that Scripture was the only true authority for any religious observances, and that no special learning was required to interpret it, the true meaning of holy writ being always revealed to men of real humility of mind. This was also the idea of Tyndale, who, encouraged by a London merchant, went abroad and printed for importation into England, a translation he had made of the new testament not from the latin vulgate like wycliffe's but from the original greek text his aim being as he said himself to make a ploughboy know the scriptures even better than a divine the invention of printing gave Tynsdale's translation an immense advantage over its predecessors it was smuggled into england and found no lack of purchasers who were obliged to keep it in secrecy but every effort was used by authority to put it down copies were bought up by the bishops in the hope that the whole impression would be suppressed and there was more than one burning of the books in st paul's churchyard but the effect was only to encourage tyndale to print off further copies and extend the scope of his labors for he went on to translate some books of the old testament from the hebrew and in england though his new testament was denounced as erroneous and heretical no doubt the language in many parts tended to discredit church authority yet the obvious thought presented itself that the best way to counteract the poison of an erroneous version would be the issue of one that was accurate and scholarly so in june fifteen thirty when a royal proclamation was issued for the suppression of tyndales and other heretical books it was intimated that though translation of the scriptures was not in itself a necessary thing yet if corrupt translations were meanwhile laid aside and the people forsook mischievous opinions the king intended hereafter to have those writings translated into english by great learned and catholic persons A few years later, Cromwell having become vice-regent in spiritual matters, Miles Coverdale, under his secret patronage, brought out in October 1535 a complete English Bible, not like Tyndale's translated from the Greek and Hebrew, but, as the title page announced, from the Dutch, meaning the German, and Latin, in fact, an English version of the Vulgate amended by comparison with the German Bible of Luther. This work, however, though dedicated to the king, was not issued by authority, and though Cromwell's injunctions of 1536 required every church to be supplied within a twelve-month with a whole Bible, quote, in Latin and also in English, the direction could not have been obeyed in fifteen thirty seven appeared matthew's bible which was really made up of Tyndale's version of the new testament and of the old testament as far as the second book of chronicles the other books of the old testament being supplied from coverdale with alterations its origin would not have pleased the bishops but the facts were concealed and a copy being submitted to cranmer he wrote to Cromwell that he thought it should be licensed till the bishops could set forth a better, which he did not expect they would ever do. The king approved. Grafton and Whitchurch, the printers, were allowed to sell it, and its sale was forced upon the clergy by new injunctions from Cromwell in 1538. Another and more luxurious edition, however, was called for, and Grafton went to Paris to see it printed, with Coverdale's aid as corrector, on the best of paper, with the best typographic art of the day. This work was far advanced when it was stopped by the French Inquisition. But Coverdale and Grafton succeeded in conveying away the presses, type, and a company of French compositors by whose aid the work was finished in London in April 1539 that edition was known as the great bible it was issued by the king's authority and cromwell's but the clergy were by no means pleased with the translation which they severely censured in convocation in fifteen forty two two years after cromwell's death they appointed committees of the best hebrew and greek scholars to revise it but the king sent a message through cranmer forbidding them to proceed as he intended to submit the work to the two universities. This was simply a false pretense to stop revision, for a patent was immediately granted to Anthony Marlar, giving to him, instead of Grafton, who was now in disgrace, the sole right of printing the Bible for four years. The Great Bible continued to be used in churches, and six were set up in St. Paul's Cathedral for general use these were the principal translations issued in henry the eighth's time and authority being given for their use those who maintained the old lollard theory that the bible could be safely interpreted without the aid of a priesthood were encouraged in their opposition to the church this theory was clearly gaining in strength during the latter part of henry's reign and its adherents became still more numerous in that of his son men founded their convictions on an infallible book were confident in their own judgments and died by hundreds under mary for beliefs that were only exceptionally held in the beginning of her father's reign the pure delight in the sacred literature itself inspired many with enthusiasm and among other results we find the musician marbeck who knew no latin compiling a concordance to the english bible and the heroic anne askew when examined for heresy full of scriptural texts and references in defending herself these cases and especially the last deserve more than a passing mention some account has been already given of martyrdoms both for refusal to acknowledge the royal supremacy and for doctrines of a novel kind but the results of the severe act of the six articles have not as yet been touched upon they were not in truth so appalling as might have been expected the presentments at first were quashed and new regulations were made about procedure which with further modifications passed by statute considerably abated the terrors of the act but in fifteen forty three just after the king's marriage with catherine parr four men of windsor were found guilty of heresy of whom three were burned at the castle and one was pardoned the man pardoned was john marbeck the celebrated musician just referred to who possibly owed his escape in part to his musical talents for he was organist of st george's chapel yet it does not seem that he had really transgressed the law in anything and bishop wakeman of hereford at his examination said with reference to his concordance this man hath been better occupied than a great sort of our priests in fifteen forty six the victims of the six articles seem to have been more numerous and the chief sufferer was a zealous lady separated from her husband and known by her maiden name of anne askew she and three others were tried at the guild hall for heresy and confessed opinions about the sacrament for which they were all condemned to the stake two of her fellows next day one of them shaxton had been bishop of salisbury yielded to the exhortations of bishops bonner and heath and were saved on being reconciled to the church but anne was resolute and would not be persuaded even by the council before whom she disputed for two days when they evidently wished to save her answering continually in language borrowed from scripture she was committed to newgate and afterwards to the tower where she was racked some time before she was burnt at smithfield suspicions seem to have been entertained that she was supported in her heresies by some of the ladies about queen catherine parr and she was tortured to reveal her confederates but she denied that she had any the story of her examination and torture written by her own hand and printed abroad for the english market certainly added new force to the coming revolution There was indeed another great change bearing on religion and social life, though not much on doctrine or ritual, the dissolution of the monasteries. Its immediate effect was to produce a vast amount of suffering. It is true that a considerable number of the monks and nuns received pensions, but very many were turned out of the houses which had been their homes, and wandered about in search of means to live even at the first suppression, Chapuis was told that, what with monks, nuns, and dependents on monasteries, there must have been 20,000 persons cast adrift, and though this was evidently a vague and probably exaggerated estimate, it indicates at least very widespread wretchedness and discomfort. More permanent results, however, arose out of the prodigious transfer of property, affecting as it is supposed about a third of the land of england it has been doubted whether the monks had been easy landlords but when the monastic lands were confiscated and sold to a host of greedy courtiers the change was severely felt the lands were all let at higher rent and the newly erected court for the augmentation of the crown revenues did its best to justify its title moreover the purchasers in order to make the most of their new acquisitions began to enclose commons where poor tenants had been accustomed to graze their cattle the tenants sold the beasts which they could not feed and the cost of living in a few years advanced very seriously this was one of the main causes of Ket's rebellion in the following reign MEANWHILE, ALL OVER THE COUNTRY, MEN BEHELD WITH SADNESS A HOST OF DESERTED BUILDINGS WITH RUINED WALLS, WHERE FORMERLY RICH AND POOR USED TO RECEIVE HOSPITALITY ON THEIR TRAVELS, WHERE GENTLEMEN COULD OBTAIN LOANS ON EASY TERMS, OR DEPOSIT PRECIOUS DOCUMENTS, AS IN PLACES MORE SECURE THAN THEIR OWN HOMES, WHERE THE NEEDY ALWAYS FOUND RELIEF AND SHELTER, AND WHERE SPIRITUAL WANTS WERE ATTENDED TO NO LESS THAN PHYSICAL. THE BLANK WAS FELT PARTICULARLY IN SOLITARY AND mountainous DISTRICTS, WHERE THE MONKS HAD ASSISTED TRAVELERS, OFTEN COMMERCIAL TRAVELERS AND BAGGERS OF CORN, WHOSE SERVICES WERE MOST USEFUL TO THE COUNTRYSIDE, WITH MEN AND HORSES TO PURSUE THEIR JOURNEYS IN SAFETY. QUOTE, ALSO THE ABBEYS, SAID ASK, was one of the beauties of this realm to all men and strangers passing through the same. All gentlemen much succored in their needs with money, their younger sons there succored, and in nunneries their daughters brought up in virtue, and also their evidences, i.e. title-deeds, and money, left to the uses of infants in Abbey's hands, always sure there. And such abbeys as were near the danger of sea banks, great maintainers of sea walls and dikes, maintainers and builders of bridges and highways, and such other things for the commonwealth. End quote. What arts and industries disappeared or were driven into other channels on the fall of the monasteries is a matter for reflection. Rural labor, of course, still went on where it was necessary for the support of life but some arts formerly brought to high perfection in monastic seclusion were either paralyzed for a time or migrated into the towns sculpture embroidery clock-making bell-founding were among these and it is needless to speak of what literature owes to the transcribers of manuscripts and the composers of monastic chronicles true monasticism had long been on the decline before it was swept away the monastic chronicles were already one might say things of the past but it was in monasteries also that the first printing presses were set up and the art which superseded that of the transcriber was cherished by the same influence finally the education of the people was largely due to the convent schools and there is no doubt that it suffered very severely not only from the suppression of the monasteries but perhaps even more from the confiscation of chantries which began at the end of the reign for the chantry priest was often the local schoolmaster nor did the boasted educational foundations of edward the sixth do much to redress the wrong for in truth his schools were old schools, refounded with poorer endowments. Still more did the higher education of the country suffer, for the monasteries had been in the habit of sending up scholars to the universities, and often maintained some of their own junior members there to complete their education. After the suppression, consequently, university studies went gradually to decay and a few men studied for degrees in the six years from fifteen forty two to fifteen forty eight only one hundred ninety one students were admitted bachelors of arts at cambridge and only one hundred seventy three at oxford the foundation of Regius professorships at oxford and cambridge was a slight compensation the dispersion of valuable monastic libraries moreover was to some extent counteracted by the efforts of leyland the antiquary in his tour through england to preserve some of their choicest treasures for the king altogether no such sweeping changes had been known for centuries as regards the land some of the results may have been in the end for good better husbandry and new modes of farming no doubt succeeded in developing more fully the resources of the soil a check too was doubtless placed on indiscriminate charity but problems were raised which were new in kind at the beginning of the reign the chief evils felt were depopulation vagrancy and thieves economic laws of course were not understood and attempts were made by legislation TO PREVENT HUSBANDMEN'S DWELLINGS BEING THROWN DOWN BY LANDLORDS, WHO FOUND IT PROFITABLE TO DEVOTE ARABLE LAND TO PASTURE, TO INCREASE THE GROWTH OF WOOL. THE FREQUENT REPETITION OF THESE ACTS ONLY SHOWS HOW INEFFECTIVE THEY WERE IN PRACTICE, AND IN THE BEGINNING OF THE SEVENTEENTH CENTURY THEY HAD BECOME SO COMPLICATED THAT COKE REJOICED AT THEIR REPEAL but the evils of vagrancy and poverty assumed new forms. The precise effect of the fall of the monasteries upon pauperism is not altogether easy to estimate, but the statement of Chapuis removes all doubt that it was the immediate cause of bitter penury. The evidence of the statute book on this point requires careful interpretation, for it was only in a later age that law was invoked to do the duty of charity. Down to the middle of Henry VIII's reign, repeated acts had been passed for the punishment of sturdy beggars and vagabonds. But it gradually came to be perceived that this problem could not be dealt with apart from relief of the deserving poor. In 1536, the same session of Parliament which dissolved the smaller monasteries passed an act for the systematic maintenance of paupers by charitable collections and in the first year of edward the sixth parliament for the first time attempted to deal with the two problems together with penalties of atrocious severity against vagabonds but severity was futile the act was speedily repealed and under elizabeth a regular system of poor law Relief was established. From the beginning of his reign, Henry had been profuse in his expenditure. His tastes were luxurious, and he gratified them to a large extent at the cost of others. He made Wolsey present him with Hampton Court. After the Cardinal's fall, he took York Place and called it Whitehall. He purchased from Eton College the hospital of st james made it into a palace and laid out st james park he built none such and made another large park in the neighborhood before he had been many years king the enormous wealth left him by his father must have been nearly all dissipated yet the subsidies he required from parliament were very moderate till fifteen twenty three when as we have seen unprecedented taxation was imposed for the French War, in addition to a forced loan, from repayment of which he was absolved by the legislature in the year of Wolsey's fall. Then, in a few years, followed the pillage of the monasteries, while, throughout the reign, there were numerous attainders involving large confiscations. In addition to this immense booty, came further subsidies, a further forced loan for a new war with france and a new release by parliament from the duty of repayment finally to relieve an exhausted exchequer the king was driven to the expedient of debasing the currency in fifteen forty two a gold coinage was issued of twenty-three carats fine and one carat of alloy with a silver coinage of ten ounces pure silver to two ounces of alloy. In 1544 the gold was still twenty-three carats fine, but the silver was only nine ounces to three ounces of alloy. In 1545 the gold was twenty-two carats and the silver six ounces to six ounces of alloy. In 1546 the gold was only twenty carats and the silver four ounces to eight ounces of alloy this rapid deterioration of the money though it brought a profit to the king in the last year of five pounds two shillings in the coinage of every pound weight of gold and of four pounds four shillings on every pound weight of silver produced of course the most serious consequences to the public apart from this no doubt prices must soon have been affected by the quantity of silver and gold poured into europe from mexican and peruvian mines but the great issue of base money in this and the following reign produced a complete derangement of commerce and untold inconvenience not only by the sudden alteration of values but by the want of confidence which it everywhere inspired not till the reign of queen elizabeth could a remedy be effectually applied to so great an evil the king's high-handed proceedings alike as regards the church the monasteries and the coinage lowered the moral tone of the whole community men lost faith in their religion greedy courtiers sprang up eager for grants of abbey lands a new nobility was raised out of the money-getting middle classes and a host of placemen enriched themselves by continual peculation covetousness and fraud reigned in the highest places yet there is some soul of goodness in things evil and the same policy that under henry the eighth destroyed the autonomy of the church and suppressed the monasteries made him seek not only to unify his kingdom, but to bring together the British islands under one single rule. England itself, no doubt, was a united country at his accession, but its cohesion was not perfect. Wales and the north country beyond Trent each required somewhat special government, and Ireland, of course, was a problem by itself, yet no serious perplexities had grown up when in fifteen twenty five the king sent his bastard son the duke of richmond into yorkshire with a council to govern the north and his daughter mary with another council to hold a court on the borders of wales for the settlement of disputes in that country without reference to the courts at westminster this arrangement was soon set aside when mary's legitimacy was questioned and the disaffection of rice ap griffith whose father and grandfather had governed wales for henry the seventh was undoubtedly connected with the divorce question a little later a new council for the marches was set up under roland lee whom the king appointed bishop of coventry and lichfield and by several successive acts of parliament wales itself was divided into shires and the administration of justice in the principality assimilated to that which prevailed in england only with a great sessions held twice a year in every county instead of quarterly assizes the admission of twenty-seven members for welsh constituencies to the english parliament completed the union of the principality with the kingdom of a similar tendency was an act of the king's twenty-seventh year by which the old prerogatives of counties palatine were abolished and the sole power of appointing justices or pardoning offences over the whole kingdom restored to the crown of the beneficial results of these changes it is impossible to doubt especially in wales where gentlemen thieves had been a good deal too influential the north of england was less easily coerced and after the severe measures taken by norfolk to put down the rebellion a new council of the north was established first under bishop tunstall of durham afterwards under bishop Holgate of landoff this council which like that of wales was abolished by the long parliament in sixteen forty one was undoubtedly without parliamentary authority it acted merely by the deputed authority of the crown yet its acts could scarcely have been felt as extremely tyrannical after the submission of the whole country in fifteen thirty seven renewed to the king himself when he went thither in fifteen forty one in ireland the king's policy was after many years wonderfully successful early in the reign he had allowed the earl of kildare as lord deputy to manage everything to treat his own enemies as the king's and appropriate their confiscated lands this however could not last and in fifteen twenty the earl of surrey was sent over as deputy who with the aid of sir piers butler set about reducing the land to subjection he made a good beginning and handed over the work to sir piers but the feud between the geraldines and the butlers made government impossible kildare was restored for a time but as we have seen had to be recalled whereupon his son becoming the pope's champion almost wrested for a time the whole government of ireland from the king but before many years the geraldines were completely crushed and young kildare and his five uncles were hanged at tyburn lord leonard Grey's government however was complained of he was recalled and sent to the block it was under his successor saint leger that real progress was at last made without attempting distant expeditions he endeavoured first of all to make the pale secure and and by-and-by induced the irish chieftains to submit accepting titles from the king and renouncing the pope's spiritual authority The triumph was completed by the passing of Acts, both in the Irish and in the English Parliament, by which the King's style was altered to King, instead of Lord of Ireland. The new style was proclaimed in England on January 23, 1542. When Irish chieftains sat in a Dublin Parliament as earls and barons, with the Quondam head of the Irish Knights of St. John as Viscount Clontarf, a great step had evidently been taken towards conciliation. In 1542 it was announced that Ireland was actually at peace, and, although this state of matters did not continue, the end of the reign was comparatively untroubled. Thus Henry, notwithstanding his defiance of the Pope, was wonderfully successful in making himself secure at home. Abroad, he had warded off the danger of any attempt at invasion to enforce the papal excommunication by continually fomenting the mutual jealousies of the two leading princes on the continent. The time came, however, when, neutrality being no longer possible, he prepared to throw in his lot with the emperor against France and it was in view of a war with france as we have seen that he attempted just when ireland had been pacified to get scotland completely under his power a task which proved too much both for him and for his successor naturally the navy and the defence of the coast occupied much of this king's attention from the earliest years of his reign indeed henry took much interest in his ships Trinity House owes its origin to a guild founded by royal license at Deptford Strand before he had been four years upon the throne. Earlier still, when the regent was burned in 1512, he immediately set about the building of the Great Harry, on board of which he received a grand array of ambassadors and bishops when it was dedicated in June 1514. She was the largest vessel then afloat, and her sailing qualities were no less admirable than her bulk in fifteen twenty two admiral fitzwilliam reported that she outsailed all the ships of the fleet except the unfortunate mary rose the royal navy consisted commonly of about thirty or forty sail but it could always be augmented from merchant ships or ships which were private property though it was reported by marillac in fifteen forty that there were only seven or eight vessels besides the king's which were of more than four hundred or five hundred tons burden. Henry's solicitude about his ships was further shown on the sinking of the Mary Rose before his eyes in fifteen forty five. Next year, for the first time, a navy board was established. The importance of the command of the sea was shown in two instances at the end of the reign when the french besieged the english in boulogne and when the scotch government attempted to besiege henry's friends the murderers of cardinal Baton in st andrews the hold which henry thus had both on france and scotland was important for his own protection and the foundation of england's greatness as a world power may be traced to a tyrant's strenuous efforts to defend his own position Of less permanent importance in this way were the numerous fortifications he raised upon the coast. He built Sandgate Castle in Kent, Camber Castle near Rye, and fortifications at Cowes, Calshot and Hurst upon the Solin, and a number of other places besides. As to his army, for the most part he was not very well served. The policy of his father had been to prohibit by law THE LARGE RETINUES FORMERLY MAINTAINED BY THE NOBLES TO PREVENT THE RENEWAL OF CIVIL WAR. THE RESULT WAS THAT, WHEN TROOPS WERE NEEDED FOR ACTIVE SERVICE ABROAD, THE NOBLES HAD NO PERSONAL FOLLOWING, BUT, BEING EACH BOUND BY INDENTURE TO BRING SO MANY SOLDIERS INTO THE FIELD, HIRED MEN FOR THE OCCASION AT SPECIFIC WAGES. IN CONSEQUENCE THEY WERE RAW AND ILL DISCIPLINED and their extraordinary revolt under Dorset in Spain in 1512 was almost paralleled in 1523, when Suffolk, partly by the weather and partly by the insubordination of his followers, was compelled to disband his army and return to Calais. After that date, there was no great fighting for nearly twenty years, when the king again became involved both with France and with Scotland, in this french war he supplemented his own forces by engaging german mercenaries who demanded exorbitant pay and cheated him besides he also detained in england with the emperor's leave two spanish noblemen of great distinction and took a number of their countrymen into his service who were delighted with his liberality the increase of english influence abroad during this reign was in fact Due rather to the personal qualities of the king and to the skilful use which he made of European complications than to the number or excellence of the troops at his command. End of section forty nine. Recording by Linda Johnson.